It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Boring. Each week, we look at sports topics of local interest, maybe a national sports topic or two. We've got a, a gambling segment. We've actually got something to talk about, despite the fact that there, there really are no games to gamble on, for lack of a better term. We're not in the daily baseball grind like some may be. And, of course, my favorite portion of the program, which is the Ask Skinny Anything, where you can ask me any question or any topic, and I'll try to give you an answer. Rick, before we get started, i got to be honest with you. You know, I'm not a big NBA watcher, but I, I catch highlights here and there. I'm going to tell you, I saw one of the greatest athletic feats of all time last night in an NBA game. And it wasn't the fact that Joel Embiid almost made a 75 foot shot at, at the at the buzz that would have first over time. <laughs> Did you see the highlight of it? So I, I, I don't think I saw the actual highlight, but I think I saw a meme of what you're talking about, where Joel Embiid throws a full court shot and then it flashes to an old school viral video like even before youtube existed of a kid running a baseline and getting hit in the head and knocked down by the shot like it, <laughs> it switched to mid mid frame there on me that, but, that's uh, funny I, no. i'm assuming that's what it was though the same yeah he, that you're talking he, about. so he almost banks in a, a one-handed shot from below the foul line on the other side of it right and, and you've seen guys that have done that before they just you know they right. sling it to the rim and the fact that he did it when he grabbed a rebound going I want to see if I can do this justice visually. For those that have seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. But those who haven't, you need to go see this. Because I, I think the most, everybody's talking about how close the shot came to going in. I don't even care about that. He grabs the rebound kind of off balance, leaning back towards where the foul shooter is, right? Takes a step and he's leaning forward as he flings it one-handed. Most people, if you're flinging it one-handed from there, you've got to get all your might, right? Like take a huge step and fire it. Dude, he almost like flipped it. All He's the a way. big human. It's incredible. When we're done with the podcast, go watch it, and you'll you'll come to the same conclusion well, I did. It well, is one of the most incredible exactly, things I've ever watched. Like I said, I saw exactly how he shot it. I didn't see the result of it because it switched to a different video yeah. once it got past midcourt. But, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of how difficult the body angle and motion. Oh, it's it, it, it's, I, I watched it three or four times this morning, and every time I keep watching, I'm like, how in the world did he get that much on it? With You talk about having an upper body. Holy Toledo. Not at, no, we're just pissing people off by talking this much NBA. I know already. that. But that being said, it's not as crazy as what Steph Curry has been doing for the last month or so. He except is, for, la- except for last night. <laughs> Where he, where he struggled last night to make shots. you know, And he's still shooting like 50% from oh, three yeah. even after yeah. last night. It's crazy. For the month. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into some baseball talk after yes. that nice little NBA segment. We have Sorry about that. I, I well, just, I hey, still, I'm you know, I'm for it. You know, I'm for it. It's just the uh, people at home. I, honestly, even if you're not an NBA fan, go watch this and just look at the athletic feet. That's all I'm, I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to retweet it right after the show before okay. we even publish this. So there you go. Just go to my Twitter feed. Uh, the Reds have lost seven of their last 10 and now sit a game and a half back of the Brewers in first place with a record of nine and eight. The Reds are slipping after their hot start, but the bigger concern is that some of their most important pieces are really struggling right now, Skinny. So I ask you, should Reds fans be more concerned about Luis Castillo's struggles over his first four starts, Amir Garrett's problems in his six appearances as closer, or Eugenio Suarez's issues through the first 17 games? That's a great question because you're making me choose, and all three of those have to be a little bit of a concern. Castillo a little bit less um, because we've seen him have a good start, and I, I just think that he's going to be fine when all is said and done. But you may, you, you're asking me a choice, and I'm going to go with you, Eugenio Suarez. 
Um, you know, I, I thought last year was kind of an outlier, kind of a one-off that, listen, it was a 60 game season, never got in the groove, still had a little bit of pop in his bat, obviously still hit, hit, hit plenty of home runs in that 60 game season, but the average was, was abysmal and strikeouts were alarming. And right now he just looks lost. I mean, he's, he's batting 167. He struck out 28 times in 70 some odd plate appearances. Uh, the one to end the suspended game was kind of a microcosm where he smashed a, a fastball foul for strike two, did fight off another pitch. It was a fastball up and in, and then a slider low and away. He looked like he couldn't hit it with a boat or in a five day head start. I mean, that that's how people are getting him out anymore. And, and it, it seems like this has been a pattern where he just will not go the other way with an off speed pitch. And uh, I think there's a giant hole right there that people are exploiting and, and he's really struggling with it. And until he fixes it, because the thing is, he's got great power away. He's got plenty of pop to go the other way. And not every swing has to be a home run swing at times. Uh, I am concerned because I, I just, I thought fresh start new season. He got himself in great condition. All systems go. And we're almost a full month in, and this is now starting to become, if you go to back to last year, a giant alarming trend. We'll get to Amir Garrett in a second, but you asked the question. That's my answer is Eugenio Suarez. Well, I think your answer is right. Uh, 28 strikeouts at this point through, what, 60 at-bats, I think it is. So almost yeah, seven half the time, yeah. Yeah, almost half the time he's striking out right now. And you said there's a big hole. It's not one big hole. There's holes throughout his entire strike zone. He's swinging at bad pitches. He's easily fooled. It seems like he has absolutely no confidence. And I don't know how you fix a guy that's going like that. He's not making good contact very often. I mean, you mentioned a couple that he's fouled off. But in terms of when he's putting balls in play, there's not a lot there right now to be excited about if you're a Reds fan. He got that one hit in Wednesday night's game before they blew the big lead and you were thinking, Oh, okay, maybe this will finally get him going, but it's just not clicking for him at all. He's not bouncing back in the way that I think everybody kind of expected him to. I mean, you you knew that he was switching positions and he had lost some weight and okay. The vibes are good in spring training and all that, but I mean, everyone thought he would be back to at least a serviceable player this year, if not the Reds best hitter again. And He's awful. I mean, he's got no shot up there when he when he's stepping into the batter's box. I don't know how they're going to be able to fix that, if that's a, a thing that's fixable right now. I mean, it's really becoming a big problem. With well, the- and, and, and that's the thing. It's It'd be one thing, Rick, if, if um, you know, he was coming off a normal year of, you know, what he, of production and, and you just would do this as a, hey, this is just a slow start, right? You, you, you'd be able to do that. But if you mix it back to last year, this is a this is now a long trend of lack of success at the plate. Right. And that's the concerning part about it. I, with the two pitchers, it's still early enough with each of them. I mean, Garrett, Garrett has pitched four and a third innings. Um, Castillo has obviously pitched a lot more innings, but it's still just four starts. And one of them was pretty good. You, it, I, I don't like saying it's early, you know, because that's how you end up out of contention right. by the all-star break is saying it's early while you're piling up a bunch of losses. That being said, for those two guys, it's still a small enough sample size that it could just be a, a, a small slump to start the season. Especially, I think people are overreacting to Garrett a little bit. I understand that he's blowing wins, and that is a concern, and maybe you should think about moving him out of the, the closer role. Yes, and I think that's what but, you should do. But people that are, I mean, freaking out and acting like this guy stinks all of a sudden, it's like, hold on, hold on. 
Everyone was excited about moving him back to the closers role. We I, all I thought this was the nastiest guy in the bullpen, the most competitive guy and all that stuff. It's four and a third innings. Yes, it's been a disaster of a four and third inning, and he is actually losing them games right now. So they do need to do something about it. I'm not I'm not saying don't try someone else in the closers role, but I do think people are jumping ship on Amir Garrett a little fast here. Yeah, I'm one of those that, that wants him in that closers role, but I think if you're struggling like this, you got to get him out quick. You just can't sure. keep losing because then he's going to lose his confidence too. But, um, but he, he talked also, after the game that, that he's that he's really struggling with his slider, and if his slider's not working, I mean that's his best. Pitch. That's his out pitch, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's his out pitch. If it's not working for him, he needs to find the feel of that again, and when he does, he's probably going to go on a roll. But right now, he doesn't have the feel for it, so stop forcing. And that goes back to the damn overmanaging stuff. I know we talked about TJ Antone had pitched the day before, but dude's on a roll. Let him finish for That's the what, love I, of God. Let him finish. I tweeted it out after he pitched the first inning of work in Wednesday night's game. You know, I, I said, just, I hope he's got two more innings in him. Cause I do not feel good about the reds taking him out of the game at this point. And of course we know what happened, but I do think some people missed the point there too. When they talk about the overmanaging with David bell and what happened, you've got a guy in Amir Garrett who's struggling a little bit at this point. 3-0 lead for your closer. Yeah, it's fair. That that's the point where you can get a little work and feel good about it. That's not well, a high leverage guys on base and you're trying to thread the needle. That's you got a three-run lead and and no one on to start your your inning. Yeah, and, and to back that point up, especially when they had, I think, a switch hitter and two lefties coming up. I mean right. I mean, this is exactly where you bring it. I mean, your Garrett in, get him some confidence and try to get him going. I don't I do not fault the manager at all for bringing Amir Garrett into a three, nothing baseball game. Yeah, he's supposed he, to be your best bullpen arm. Yeah. You know me though. I'm, I'm going to that philosophy. If I'm, if a guy's working, I'm letting him work until he shows me he can't get people. I, I'm, just I'm with that, you. I'm in that, I'm in that phase of, of Look, where I, I'm at with bullpens. I straight up said, I wanted TJ Antone to finish the game after he yep. pitched the first inning. I I'm completely with you on that at the same time. Oh, I get it. No, I, yeah. 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 Your point's it, fair it's again. not like they're, it's, you know, it's not like you, they're trying to give a game away in that situation. No, you, it's a three Oh lead and you're handed off to your, your closer. Yeah. You gave him a silver platter. You're right. You didn't give him a one run lead. You gave him a three Oh lead with, with again, switch hitter, lefty, lefty, or lefty, lefty. So however it worked yeah. out, there were two lefties and a switch hitter in that, in that inning, you couldn't have given him a better scenario to say, Son, go get a save and get your confidence back. Outside of mop-up duty, this is the exact situation you want to bring Amir right. Garrett into when he's scuffling. You know, I mean, the, the, I, I do not fault them at all for that. Uh, let's go to the final piece here, Luis Castillo, because this is the one where I would have placed this second after Suarez. And in some regards, I'm even more concerned about Castillo and what it means for the Reds' overall status, because everyone – after Trevor Bauer left, it was kind of like, well, the Reds staff is still going to be really good. Luis Castillo is an ace. Sonny Gray had a great season. Like, I, I, look, Luis Castillo has never been an ace. He's had some some good seasons for the Reds. He's also been a little up and down. He's never been a guy who's dominant. I mean, if he's not locating perfectly and really on his stuff, he's a, a really average and very hittable type of guy. I I would be pretty concerned about him too, just because the, the philosophy coming into the season was Luis Castillo is really good. Sonny Gray is assuming he could, continues on the path that he was on Gallagher. last year is a legit starter and, and you've got a pretty good staff. But if Luis Castillo isn't all that good, the staff isn't very good. Everyone was like holding him up there as an ace. And I just, he's clearly not that in my opinion. And I'm concerned that he's not even a top two type of guy. No, uh, you know, I'm I'm in that group that thinks he is an ace or thought he was an ace, but I think, you know, I, I think you're you're probably onto something a little bit of maybe maybe we fall in love with how often he gets people to swing and miss just because his 
you know, he he does that so often that that you assume that that that's a stuff and maybe it's just not because the numbers kind of dictated. He's a high three R three ERA pitcher for his career. He's a, he's a, he's a, actually a, a loss below 500 and wins and losses. I know don't mean everything for pitchers, but I think it's over a, a long period of time. It does show something, right. Um, whether you can figure out ways to win games. And so that does smack to me of a middle of the rotation guy. When I honestly thought he was a perfect top of the rotation guy, a number two at worst and a solid number two at worst. And now I'm thinking Tyler Malley is probably your number two on this staff. Well, and, and, I'd love to talk more about Mally because that, that kind of would transition to my next point about Castillo is that my, maybe the biggest concern about him long-term with the Reds is the Derek Johnson, Kyle body, this new regime of pitching coach. He does not align right. with their theories on baseball and how they want to pitch. He's a low spin rate guy. His out pitches is change up. He's not a power arm. That's not their MO of, of the type of guy they've been going after the type of guy they're having a lot of success with. On the flip side, Mally is exactly that guy, and you're seeing him flourish yeah, under no, the, right. this coaching staff. So I do have some serious concerns about Luis Castillo in that regard. On the flip side, the great thing, and, and part of the reason the Reds have had some success early this season, is Mally is really pitching lights out, and he seems to be super comfortable with this staff and Tyler Stevenson catching him. And I mean, he, he, the way he's locating his 95, 96-mile-an-hour fastball all of a sudden is – I mean, that's legit stuff. I mean, I mean it's, got, was, it's got movement was, on it. He's hitting he the corners dominant. everywhere. Yeah. He was dominant in Wednesday night's game. I mean, not just good, dominant in Wednesday night's game. And that's like the third third, third start right. he's had where he's been dominant. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on Castillo. And I'm like I said, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that, that I was in that group that, that thinks he has a stuff. And sometimes that doesn't translate. Um, and it's not translating for him. And really, I think overall in his career, it's not translating. We, it, for me, it feels like I keep the last couple of years of, oh, I think he's going to be great. And I'm waiting for him to take the step and it's just not happened. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think it's going the other direction. Yeah. And when you have a guy that doesn't have the greatest athletic ability or greatest tools to work with, to begin with it, Yeah. It concerns you a little bit when they start sliding that other direction. Cause you don't know that they really have the stuff to get back on top. All right, Skinny, next topic up. We've got just over a week before the start of the NFL draft, and that means it's time to finally have the debate to end all debates. We've kind of been steering clear of it because it's all you're hearing about, not just locally, but even on the national airwaves. But who should the Bengals be taking? What's your final stance on this? Is it Panay Sewell or is it Jamar Chase? You know, I I was watching a show this morning before we did this this podcast, and and the point and they were all, it was Lewis Riddick, who I really like. Uh, Mel Kuyper, who I actually like. I mean, Mel kind of has, he's goofy, but I, I do like Mel. Um, Booger McFarland um, was on there as well. And they were, they were kind of going through the top guys and they got to the Bengals. And the point was, if, if you have Penny Sewell graded equally with Jamar Chase, vice versa, you always take the tackle. And I'm still not in that camp. I'm sorry I'm not. And they're probably right. And that doesn't mean they're talking about if all things are equal. Now they all said they should take Sewell. Uh, but that's assuming that you've got Sewell and Chase graded equally if the Bengals do and where they have them on their big board. I'm still of the ilk that, that it, it's, it's Chase. I, I just – listen, you've got to – got real, real quick, are you, are you of the ilk that it's Chase that they should take or that they will take? I think it's Chase that they will take. Um, and I think it's Chase that they should take. So I'll okay. go on both of those accounts for me. Um, 
because you do have right you have and Duke Tobin I don't know if he tipped a hand yesterday I kind of wrote it that way um you know he had a couple quotes about the offensive line and feeling comfortable with the group they have and uh they still have some young guys they believe in and the fact that the guy who they drafted five has to come in in their opinion and produce right away I mean in theory Penny Sewell can come in and, and, and you're you're not counting on him to produce right away you're hoping he does you're hoping he forces his way into the spot at guard but I'm going to tell you, Rick, when I did the wide receiver breakdown yesterday, yes, there are a lot of wide receivers after the first round that are quality, and I get how deep this class is. But right now, if you had to line up today without drafting anybody, it's it's Auden Tate, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd are very capable wide receivers, really good, solid wide receivers. But they're not game breakers. They're not difference makers. They're really good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they're really, really good, so I don't want that to besmirch them. Am I going to count on a second round pick or a third round pick to come in and be a difference maker? No, I've got my two guys that are already here are two second round picks who are good players, but not difference makers. Um, Tyler Boyd is not a one. T Higgins is not a one. They're really good. In fact, they're two and two a, in my opinion, I need a definitive game breaking number one right now. And that's who you're going to get with that fifth pick with Jamar chase, in my opinion. And that's why you do it. And then that doesn't mean you ignore offensive line then because you do, I think, I think if they had to go into a game today, they are more than comfortable with the starting offensive line being Jonah Williams at left, left tackle, um, Quentin Spain at left guard, Trey Hopkins at center, Xavier Suofilo at right guard, Riley Reef at right tackle. So then if you want to get some developmental guys behind them for the future, because Riley Reef's only here on a one-year deal, you can certainly double up in the second and third round and, and, and get those guys as developmental offensive linemen. Yeah, I, I, I just... I'm leaning towards that. And it's going to be really interesting too, because, and I made this point on the sports authority Sunday, these drafts are going to develop or the draft is going to develop in very, very, very different ways, depending on who you take in that first round. If they do take soul for whatever reason, I can't see them waiting past the second round to go get another wide receiver. And I do think that whether they take chase in the first round or a wide receiver, I think, I think they double up at some point in rounds four or five or later to get even another wide receiver on top of it, because really that room is not very deep. I mean, if you, if you if you played a game today without a draft pick, your, your fourth wide receiver, I believe, would be Mike Thomas, and your fifth would be Stanley Morgan. So you you need to add in the draft. And I just thought the way that that Duke Tobin said it yesterday that, that we'll address offensive line at some point. Yeah. I don't know what that point is. It just and again, you know how smoke signals go at this time. I don't know why they need to send smoke signals because they're gonna probably have their choice of the best non-quarterback on the board anyway. Um, so I don't know why they would need to send smoke signals. It just made me feel like they're leaning towards Chase. Yeah, I thought that was the the quote that had everyone kind of buzzing a little bit yesterday when Duke Tobin said that we'll address offensive line at some point in the draft. It made it sort of feel like, okay, yeah, that that means not the fifth pick or you're, you're considering other later options. And a lot of people have talked about the depth at offensive line being better in this draft than it is at wide receiver. Here's the reality of the situation for me. I can be talked into either one. I, and I really think they have a pretty good option in either scenario. Now, I think the fact that they didn't do anything to address wide receiver and free agency, didn't even really sniff anybody, means that they're going to take Jamar Chase. It does seem like that's, that's my going opinion. To be the yeah, case. exactly. I think my case for drafting Jamar Chase is that your offensive line is more about how bad your worst player is than how good your best player is. 
I firmly believe that in the NFL. It's kind of been something that's been going on out there as people have been sorting through what the best drafting strategy is in, in this situation, whether it's a great skill player or a, a great offensive lineman. If you've you've got a top five pick like this, the Bengals kind of been the, the poster team for this debate on how to build your roster. And I think that's the case. It, you, you can If you have a solid second-round offensive lineman, even if he's not – potential Hall of Fame worthy down the line, Panay Sewell, if you get a solid offensive lineman in the second round, this team can be fine going forward. You can protect Joe Burrow enough, you'll be okay. That's not the situation at wide receiver. You get a decent wide receiver to go along with decent guys that you already have. That's not changing you at all. Whereas wide receiver, that's a position where the the top end, the elite talents are the difference makers. That's how you, you win with your offenses by having those elite playmakers. So I do think there's a lot of reason and value in, in drafting a playmaker like that with a top five pick, as opposed to an offensive lineman on the flip side, I look at how the Bengals have drafted and they've been a whole lot better at evaluating wide receiver talent, not just in the first round, but second round and later on as well, they've been able to go out and find guys in the later rounds that can become difference makers and become really solid starters in the NFL. They have not been good at drafting offensive linemen. Now, maybe that's a reason you say, well, don't waste the fifth overall pick on offensive linemen. But I kind of look at that and say, you know, maybe they should just go with the best guy on the board, the number one offensive lineman, the guy that everyone thinks has a chance to be a perennial pro bowler in Panay Sewell. Maybe they should just go ahead and take that guy who's sitting right there in front of him as the offensive lineman and then try to get it right with a wide receiver later because they've been much better at that. No, you, and, and you're right about that they've been much better. Um, T. Higgins was a second rounder. Tyler Boyd was a second rounder. Auden Tate was a seventh rounder. Um, Chad Johnson right. was a second rounder going all but, the way. But hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I know that's totally different regimes. Who, right. Who's the last difference making wide receiver the Bengals had? AJ, AJ Green. Green. Right. And when, when was he taken? He was taken fourth, fourth yeah. overall. So, <laughs> but like, like I, I said, am they, I, am they, I, am they I getting are good at drafting so, receivers, period. Right. So, so, but am I going to wait to get another Tyler Boyd T Higgins type in round two, or am I going to get a potential AJ green difference maker in round one? Sure. And I know everyone, before we go too far down this, I know everyone's going to point to John Ross. I get it. They got, they got one wrong there for sure. Well, and, and, I, and there was a lot receiver. of people. Yeah. Let me just tell you, there were a lot of people, both around the NFL and inside that organization that were very indifferent on this lecture. I go back to, to me, that John Ross pick was the first time Marvin Lewis didn't have his voice heard. And I think at that point, he just said to hell with this. Yeah. Uh, he did not want John Ross at all. No, I so, think that so, was so, very so, yeah. much the case. Yeah. I, I think this case for the Bengals, if they take chase, I think it would be very unanimous in that, in that draft room of, of who it is. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It, I'm, I'm curious that you brought up the point of if all things are equal, if they have them equal on their draft board, do you believe that's the case? Do you think they see those guys as being, yeah, I don't basically know the, the same type of talent. I don't know the answer to that. Um, it, it just again, am I reading tea leaves? Because Duke Tobin's very, fairly monotone, but it, it seemed like he was more, way more effusive in his praise of Jamar Chase's pro day than Penny Souls. He didn't crap on Penny Souls by any stretch, but it just it sounded like the the praise for the whole thing was far more effusive for Jamar Chase. Well, Penny Souls' arms were half an inch short, skinny, yeah, or a quarter know, of an yeah. inch short, or something. So, man, that yeah, that yeah, that, that there's there's your ding right there on Penny Soul. Yep, I think it's pretty obvious at that point. <laughs> yeah, you there's just no draft question. Chase. Yeah. yeah, just draft the longest arms guy in the, in, in America. Draft the guy with the biggest wingspan. Exactly. 
the Bengals also made big news on Monday when they unveiled new uniforms for the 2021 season, marking the first major change since adding stripes prior to the 1981 season. I, I know you don't care about this for the most part, but I don't. give me the best you got on the Bengals' new jersey, Skinny. Meh. I mean, they're okay. It looked like they just kind of repurposed their colors. Kind of reminds me of the time when UC changed their logo, when they all of a sudden spent $100,000 to decide, let's just italicize this. Oh, okay, let's do that. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a huge change. Oh, These these are not a huge change. They're just kind of a variation of the color rush, in my opinion. uh, I mean, what are we talking about? The, The jerseys are completely redesigned they're so much less busy they're way more simple we've gotten rid of the weird color patch going down the side the blocking on the shoulder i mean like it's a much more cohesive clean look i don't sure i i think it is pretty drastic change it's mm. the first drastic change they've had in a really long time i would say yeah i, I just I, I uniforms don't do anything for me they just don't and honestly, the more I watch games with teams changing uniforms as consistently as they do, it's like, who cool, I watch? I was watching an NBA game with the Miami Heat are wearing some effed up color that I don't even know what it is anymore. And it's like, what are we doing here? Who are you? What team am I watching anymore? Just can, can we just do we have to constantly do this? You know why we do it? The only reason the only reason we do it is for merchandise sales. Yay us. It's Skinny's old man moment yep. of the show. Yep. Yep. Brought to you by Nabisco. <laughs> I just I it, that stuff is just ugh. So actually, I'm kind of with you on like all the ridiculous NBA jerseys. That's getting to a a ridiculous level at this point. You turn on the TV on any given night and you really don't know which team is which. No, you don't. But based off the color of their jerseys, I I agree with you on that. That's getting a little out of control. In terms of the Bengals, though, the or just the NFL releases in general, you're right about they really don't do much for you. Most of these, most of them all kind of look the same at this point. They're very. stripped down simplistic minimalist designs they usually don't do much for me either the Bengals happen to be the team we cover and they've had one of the worst jerseys in the nfl for the longest time i think this is at least a much better look a much simpler look than what they had one trend i don't really like is how small the font is now on the front it's like the new nike look not just for football even but in college basketball this year i was noticing that bengal that bengals thing on the front yeah where it says the team's names right they're doing such a small uh, nameplate there on the front with all these. Again, it's, it was in college basketball, too, this year, where the team's names were tiny right there on the top of their chest. I think that look is weird. I don't really understand why they're making those so small like that. Um, I, my favorite looks, though, were the white looks. The adding the bait, like you said, sort of the, just the adding the color rush jerseys to their, their normal rotation. The white on white is great. The white on black and black on white look really good to me. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of the new jerseys. I, it's not no, nothing crazy. None of these jerseys do a ton for me, but I do think this look is a whole lot better than what they previously had. Well, but I will also say for as much hype as they tried to put around this new stripes campaign nonsense, which is utter nonsense, by the way, it just it just didn't blow me away. It probably wasn't going to anyway, because I no. don't care enough for it. Yeah, to. you're the wrong, yeah. you're the wrong target demographic. Right. I mean, this right. is for the the super nerd out fan, the guy who wears jersey to the game, that that type of person for the most part. This is who you do that for. Like you said, the people that buy all the merchandise. And for that guy, I mean, this was, in my opinion, a significant change at least. There was something to to talk about there if you really cared about jerseys. Along those lines, Rick, um, I don't even know if you saw this story yesterday. The the owners voted on some things, um, including, you know, no OT in preseason games, which is great. The, they've amended the the onside kick rule a little bit. They didn't go with any strange plans. But one of the most interesting ones to me was 
they, they've now opened up the window of uniform numbers for players. Whereas, yeah. you know, back in the day, you know, you running backs could like wear numbers 20 to 49 wide receivers could only wear up in the eighties. There had to be special exemptions for a guy to have a different number. Now they've opened up that window. Yep. RIP Austin Seibert. Yeah. And, and Jesse I wonder, Bates wants his number. Right. No, right. I, I do wonder is, do you believe that that's, as much to give players more choice or is that as much to maybe change merchandise sales again, where who Fred, who had Derrick Henry's number 22 Tennessee Titans Jersey. And now Derrick Henry decides I want my Alabama number, number two, that then he gets that. And hence people have to go back out and buy the, the Derrick Henry number two Jersey. Do you believe it's as much to give players choice or is this as much just to sell uniforms or sell, sell merchandise rather? Well, I mean that whole, like you're doing it to sell more uniforms. I'm that only works for, the initial change, right? If guys are going to switch their numbers that one time. So I don't think it's as much about that. I think it genuinely is. This is an archaic rule. And this is something guys and fans actually do like and care about. They, I mean, the guys that wear their college numbers that are single digit running backs, you know, a two, right. A nine or what have you like, or or a number 11 outside linebacker for whatever reason, like guys like that. I think, I think Jermaine, receiver, you know, I think Jermaine Pratt in college, I believe, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think he was number nine. I don't know if he's going to wear number nine because he can't because Joe Burrow's got it. But I think he was number nine in college. So, yeah, those weird linebacker numbers. So, yeah. so I think people like the idea of that. Their favorite college star getting to keep their number, stuff like that. You know how players are. They're attached to this stuff. And then the fans, the guys who are into the jerseys and stuff like we were talking about before, they're into the number stuff, too. So I think it's more about that. And, and, I, and I get that. I don't I don't really care too much about it. But I do think and this is. Jed Demusi, a former associate at Channel 12, and I were texting last night about this, and he was just like, the poor kickers across the league that are just going to have their single-digit numbers rated <laughs> here. I mean, I was like, yeah, we're going to be watching a bunch of number 47s kick. Oh, yeah, I was going to say 67, the way. a bunch of 67s kicking. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, Jesse Bates <laughs> was already saying, I need that number three, and it's like, see, Austin Seibert. I mean, yep. we'll cut you if we have to. You're, yep, Jesse exactly. Bates is getting that jersey. <laughs> no, I thought it was interesting because I think you're. I think we're going to look up for a lot of people this year and go. Wait a minute, where's Jesse? Oh, there he is. He's wearing that number. You're right. It's going to be. It's going to. I think it's going to be taking some some getting used to because I think you're going to see. You're going to see a bunch of number oh, shifts for guys. Oh yeah, I mean this is going to be a big deal for guys that are, that are already in the league. The new guys coming out obviously will just keep their numbers going forward if they're a big enough name. But yeah, the the guys that are already in the league, there's going to be some serious uh, forms of payment. I feel like that are going to go on where guys are going to need to buy a Jersey off of somebody. And if it's like a, a backup quarterback, you probably have to pay him. If it's the kicker, you just steal it. I think I don't say, think you you tell him, to... I'm going to kick your ass or you're going to give me that Jersey. One or yeah. the other, I but mean, if it's like a backup quarterback who at least has like a little bit of clout, I think, you know, you got to be creative there. Yeah, if you're the player fair. giving up your number being like, Hey, you know, I'll take uh Tesla. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Uh, this is, brings us to our betting segment of the podcast. We'll slip it in here now because we are talking about football. William Hill released updated win totals for NFL teams after free agency this week. The Bengals total has been set at six and a half games now. Skinny, where are you at on the Bengals win total? Six and a half. Ooh, um, I would say this. I, Zach Taylor better hope it's over that total. That's for sure. Um, don't forget it is a 17 game season but the Bengals added the 49ers is that 17th game. I mean, I'm going to go over because you got to hope that this team is, I mean, let's face it. I'll go back to last year, right? They're four 11 and one, but if Joe Burrow doesn't get hurt, I truly believe they get to at least six wins last year. I really believe that uh, you, you, you can talk me out of that if you want, but 
I, I do think they would have at least gotten to six wins. I think their, their roster is going to wind up being better. If Joe's upright for 17 games this year, I, I have to lean towards the over on that bet. Um, go five and four at home and go steal a couple of three on the road. Maybe go six and three at home. Yeah. Cause they play nine home games this year with the Niners being the extra home game. I, I'm going to lean towards the over. Yeah, I agree. It's not a lock. I'm a lean on the over. If this was at seven, I would probably feel differently about it. I as, as like, no way I'm even touching it. I'm if anything, it's the under, but at six and a half, it feels like seven is the number you're shooting for. If you're the Bengals this year, I feel like if they get to seven wins, most people look at that as maybe not a successful season, but the natural progression that you were looking for from this team, they were, they got better certainly. And they're on the doorstep of becoming a contender for the playoffs you know, a wild card spot, if nothing else. And uh, I, I think that's kind of where this team is at right now. So yeah, six and a half feels like the right number. I would lean over. I'm not entirely sold on the over. I can be talked into the fact that this team is only going to win six games, but, but do, uh, do seven or though, eight is I think what they're shooting for. Yeah. Do you think though, that this team is, is a, is a better team on paper and, and will be after this draft than they were last year? Oh yeah, they're, I, I defi- they're definitely better than they were last right, year. And that's, and why I, I go, that's why I go back to. I mean, I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts they're a six-win team at least with Joe. If Joe Burrow's the quarterback last year, I, I'm not. I don't think that's a certainty, but I think yeah, that's a, that's definitely a possibility that it would have won five or six games at least. And so you're just looking for a game or two improvement over that maybe. And then yeah. that's yeah, I, I I can look at it from that logic. But again, I also look at this is this you know in a a lot of ways, a, a similar team trying to win seven games. And oh, last right, year's sure. team, thinking about that team winning seven games was uh, no shot, really. Even, yeah. even six, 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 Burrow, six and a half is a good number. Yeah, six, six and a half is the right number. I think they're they're right on here. And I think Kansas City was was the top in that at, what, 12? Yeah, 12, 12, and, is a half. The n- 12 and a half, actually. 12 or 12 and a half at one point. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that. right now on DraftKings, I'm seeing 12, but you've got a lot of juice on that. It's minus 121 in terms of the odds. So extra juicy there. You're probably better off getting at 12 and a half at that point. And I right. don't know. I mean, 12 and be- a half. You're, you're going to pick a team to win 13 games. Who's taking that over? I, I'm, I'm kind of with you, but I 13 and four. I could see them being 13 and four. I could see them being 14 and three very easily. Yeah, the 17 games makes those totals a little bit different. Uh-huh. That's the other thing you got to think about, even with the Bengals. Yeah, no, no that question. extra opportunity does add a little, uh, add a little intrigue there to those numbers. Um, yeah. I don't know if the, there's not really any other numbers here to me that jump out. Just looking at the uh, other AFC North teams. Um, you got Pittsburgh at eight and a half. I saw Cleveland. I'm 10. taking the under of that. I'm taking the I'm taking the under in that too. I'm with and you. you. I, and right now at DraftKings, you can get the under with a little extra juice. You can get a plus 100 odds for under oh, eight wow. and a half at the Steelers. I like that. I love that. I mean, dude, I think they're a bad team, and 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 I don't see Ben staying upright for 17 games. I just uh, that, that's the biggest thing, and their quarterback situation then becomes an absolute disaster. Yeah. So don't don't, don't give me the Dwayne Haskins is going to uh, be rejuvenated. Yeah. The Browns are up at nine and a half. And yeah, they're, ten, they're, they're at 10 on bet, betonline.ag. That, that's, yeah. that's a tough total for me, too. I And that over is really juicy, too. If you like the under there at all at nine and a half, you can get it plus 130 on DraftKings. I, I don't. I like the over nine and a half. I don't know if I like the over 10 because I feel like it's a push. I really Nine and a half is a sweet spot for me with that because I, I do think they're a 10-win team plus but I wouldn't feel good of it going from 10 to 11. I'd want to, if I hit 10, I'd want to be able to win it, not push it. 
And then tops is the Ravens at 11. Uh, the under there, again, a little extra juice at plus 103. I think I'd take the under, and I and I, I do it saying that, listen, I just – they're, they're, they're continuing to play the lottery with Lamar Jackson, the way that offense is run. And at some point, old boy is going to get hurt and he's going to miss significant time. And to me, if he does, they're in big time trouble. So I think I'd lean way towards it. And even with him, I think I'd lean towards the other. I like him. I mean, the guy's certainly a, a stud and a weapon and all those things, but I think I'd lean under there as well. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I'm, I'm with you on that. All right, that uh, is our betting segment for this edition of the podcast. One more topic here before we get into an Ask Any Anything question or two to wrap it up. The transfer portal in college basketball is humming right along, Skinny. As we come up on 1,500 names entering the portal this year, we've had some action of local interest recently. First, new Cincinnati coach Wes Miller has pulled Mikey Saunders and Gabe Madsen back out of the transfer portal and also landed a wing from Clemson and John Newman the third, while big man Chris Vogt has announced he has entered the transfer portal. Then over at NKU, the Norse have added a pair of players in Detroit big man Chris Brandon and North Dakota forward Sabian Sims. Let's start with that. What do you think of the new pickups by the two local squads? Well, I'll start with UC, um, and, and let's not forget, they also lost Tari Eason to LSU. And I believe, didn't Wes Miller get one of his Greensboro players too? Uh, that was John Newman. The third was going okay. to, he was that's transferring right. going from Clemson, Clemson to Greensboro. That's right. To Greensboro, that's right. And, and then came. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that's the guy. Um, I mean, that's a pretty good haul. It was funny to see. I think it was Mikey Saunders mother was, was uh, tweeting at Tari Eason, trying to talk him into to returning to, to UC, but he decided to go to LSU instead. Um, and uh, that to me, I, I think getting Matson back is big. I'm, I'm not a big Mikey Saunders guy. I, 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 I don't know what he does well other than he, he can fly with the basketball in his hands. And that's probably not fair. Cause you know, not every freshman comes in and is a stud right away. I thought Madsen as the year went along, he just became a really good player uh, for them. Uh, I do think the loss of Tari Eason's a big loss, but Hey, look, he got a couple back. He got a guy that played at Clemson. I think that's a pretty good get right off the jump street and, and still probably going to get another player or two somewhere along the way, if not more. Yeah, John Newman the third, the the kid that's transferring from Clemson, and again he was going to go to Greensboro with Wes Miller. Uh, he's from Greensboro area. He was going to step down. Now he's going to Cincinnati. Obviously, a little bit of a step up in terms of level of competition, but he's coming from the ACC. Right. He's been playing against big time competition. The thing about him is he's the type of player that fits what Wes Miller wants to do. He's a defensive-minded guy. He can really guard at 6'5". He's versatile, can guard multiple spots. If it's not going to be a shooter and a guy that can really help knock down the shots offensively or create them from one of the guard spots, this is the type of guy you're going to see from Wes Miller. Athletic, up-tempo, defensive-minded, versatile, can guard multiple spots. He kind of fits that billing. I don't think it's a difference maker in your program, but it's a, a system guy, a guy that fits, a guy that'll play a role, and it's what... Wes Miller is looking for to to fill out his roster. Well, let, let, let me just say this real quick, Rick. I mean, in theory, those three that are coming back are three likely or at least potential starters. That's a pretty good spot to be in, at least that you're getting. And I know some of it is you got to fill the roster out, but that's you know it's not like you're picking up some guys going, man, that's going to be my eighth guy, my ninth guy. Now, that would be a perfect world. But for a team that's trying to piece together a roster right now, technically he got three starters back. Yeah, and I again, I don't know that any of those guys are ideal starters uh, at UC or in the American, but we've already is. seen they're we've already seen they're capable of it. I mean, right. they, the the two have already done it, and then 
um, with John Newman. Heck, he started most of his sophomore year at Clemson and averaged almost 10 points a game and, and could rebound a little bit. He, he injured his knee in the ACC tournament last year, and then he didn't bounce back as well this year. Lost a lot of minutes and, and just didn't start hardly at all. So coming off an underwhelming year, he was looking for a fresh start somewhere else. I don't think he fit Brad Brown's system really at all. Um, so this is this could be a, a good fresh start for him. I think that's a, a decent pickup and a guy that at least fit what you're trying to do. Um, Chris Vote, I think that was a situation yeah. where they just needed to move on. I don't yep. think Wes Miller had any interest in bringing him right. back. So that was no surprise there. On the other side of things, NKU landed a couple of guys skinny where Chris Brandon, when you look at his stats, is not a guy who looks like a difference maker. He's not an offensive-minded guy. He kind of fits the Adrian Nelson mold as a, as a center. He's a defensive-minded rebounder. And the, the difference, though, between him and Adrian is he has rockets in the bottom of his shoe, and he's above-the-rim guy. He, he actually offers some rim protection on the defensive end. And you put a rim protector in the back end of that defense, that's really something that NKU's been missing since Darren Horn became head coach. It's yeah, something it feels he's like, talked about wanting, but he hasn't had yet. Yeah, it feels like with both of these guys, it, you know, Sabian Sims isn't a big scorer either. The, the guy they got from uh, which of the Dakotas? South Dakota, I believe. North Dakota. North yeah. Dakota, yeah. I knew yep. one of the Dakotas. Um, that, that he's kind of a gluish guy, a, a, a six and six kind of a guy. And it feels like, is that kind of what he was looking for more than a, a difference maker, that he needed just some glue guys to go with some of the guys on the roster already? Yeah, I think that's right. Last year, I think the situation you were in was you liked your young talent, but you still had those holes in your roster that you haven't been able to fill out those, you know, that second guy off the bench, the adding a shooter, adding the backup big man. It was, you know, all of a sudden they took Adrian Nelson out of the game last year and they couldn't rebound. They couldn't get stops. So things got really hard for them. They, they needed some uh, another guy that could be a reliable Big man and Noah Hoopman from Covcath, the, the walk on, gave them some minutes and actually ended up playing a nice role off the bench. And he'll be factoring into the the plans again this year. But they needed a guy that was a rebounder, a defender, a guy that they could rely on. And uh, I think Chris Brandon gives them that. And then Sabian Sims, he'll fill in the Adam Alita role. You know, Adam Alita's decided to enter the transfer portal. Sabian Sims is a six seven forward who can shoot the three. Uh, he shot a lot of threes, about 80 something of them last year and shot, shot at like 36%. 36%. Yeah. So uh, he, he can knock it down, but he's a little bit more of a all around player than Alita was. Alita was just spot up in the corner and don't really touch the ball in that. I mean, the guy was, had, that guy had double digit rebounds a couple of times last year. Right. He, he's a little more active on the glass, a little bit more of a post guy. He can score with his back to the basket, he even has some moves in there. Not the toughest guy in the world, but he's also more comfortable handling the ball, doing some things out on the perimeter, cutting, uh, scoring around the rim. So I, I think it's a not neither one of them are earth shattering, but I think Chris Brandon really fits what they needed. And then Sabium Sims just gives them another rotation piece that that gets them closer to having no holes in their their roster. And again, I, I think he's a little bit of a step up in that Adam Alita role as a, a shooter off the bench for you. Yeah, no, I, I think that, like I said, it feels like that's exactly what Darren Horn was looking for. Of of I just need a couple of rotational pieces that. I don't want to call them specialists, but they kind of are. And and those are the guys you can fill out your roster with. Those are and 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 feel good about it. So yeah, I think they were both good gets. And I think I've told you I'm I'm so looking forward to seeing Sam Vincent play. I I just think that kid's gonna be really good. Well, and that's another reason I think Chris Brandon's value on this NKU team, the way they were operating in pick and rolls last year, and Bryson Langdon was like starting to lob 
some things up to Adrian Nelson and stuff. If you get Sam Vincent and, and Bryson Lang both doing some ball screen stuff, throwing lobs like that, attracting defense and lobbing up, Chris Brandon, that's his game. I mean, he had the number one field goal percentage in the country last year, or the number one overall offensive efficiency rating in the country last year, according to Ken Palm, and the number two uh, field goal percentage in the entire country last year, I believe. So easy I mean, when you're dunking. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's easy when you're just everything's a dunk or a, a cut around the rim, a stick back, that type of stuff. And that's his game. So uh, if you've got some guards, you can really break you down off the dribble and and get it to him to clean it up. You're you're going to be making out pretty well there. Yeah. One more guy with local ties that's generating a lot of buzz this week is former Cavcath star and now former Iowa Hawkeye CJ Frederick as he announced that he has entered the transfer portal. It came out yesterday that there's a laundry list of schools and it's the who's who of college basketball that have reached out to him. You've got Gonzaga, Virginia, Kansas, Creighton, Georgia, North Carolina, and then you have Kentucky, Cincinnati, and Xavier. A lot of buzz around him in Kentucky, Skinny. Have you heard anything else there? You have yeah, any that, I mean, thoughts dude, that, on it? That, that buzz for Kentucky's been going on since January. Um, so I do think there's some truth, and especially then when Cal came out and said he needed to recruit a little differently, um, needed to get some more shooters in the program. I mean, what does C.J. Frederick do best, Rick? He's a lights-out shooter. Lights-out shooter. Doesn't make mistakes. Not a great defender. you got to hide him a little bit. Um, and, and obviously that's the thing, you know, Cal – talks that game of wanting to change things up and get more shooters, but is he going to compromise at the other end of the floor? That's where I'm not so sure CJ Frederick's a great fit for Kentucky, but I also think he is a great fit for Kentucky. If Cal's going to swallow hard and play more shooters, um, especially to go with, you know, probably better athletes than what Iowa had. I mean, Iowa had a great player, Luca Garza, and they surrounded him with shooters and it was a nice fit, but on the defensive end, they were a five ring circus. They couldn't guard a soul. And that was certainly proven out in the, uh, in the NCAA tournament. I mean, they were a mess defensively. Um, so, and the thing is too, like I said, the kid doesn't make mistakes. He, he, I think at one point this year, Rick, he went a long time without having a single turnover on the year. I mean, a long time before he had his first turnover. So he doesn't try to do too much. He's a lights out shooter. I think if that's what Cal's looking for now, that feels like a perfect fit for Kentucky. I, I don't see Xavier's a fit at all. And you can correct me. You know the program far better than I do. I just feel like they, I, I don't know if there's any room at the end for him, right? I think if you're Travis Steele in the situation that you're in right now, where you sure as hell better make the NCAA tournament this year, you would take, CJ Frederick and you would play him this year because he gives you a better chance of winning right away. I mean, he is an elite shooter. And I think if you're Xavier looking for one more thing to add, elite shooter is probably top okay. of my list of something I would add. So on that side of things, I do think I would take him if I'm Travis Steele and I feel like I can get him. That being said, one, I think there's just way too much smoke with this Kentucky thing. I think I do too. Yeah. It, it, that's that's where it's gonna end up at is, is he'll go to Kentucky just because we've heard about it for so long and there's so much smoke around it right now. People are saying he's already actually committed and this is just to make it look uh, above board and everything like that. So who knows? But there was no tampering involved. Right. Which I mean, is silly to even be discussing. Right. I mean, Iowa acting the way they are with him leaving was just absolutely a joke. 
I well, mean, it well, really was because 99% of guys that enter the transfer yes. portal have been tampered with. That's why they're entering the transfer portal to begin with is because they know they have other options. And that's just a natural thing. These guys have relationships with these other assistant coaches. They all talk about how great of a relationship they're building with all these kids when they're recruiting them. Well, if you really have a relationship with someone, isn't it weird that you would just never talk to them ever again? So right. it's not like it's, they don't even have to reach out to the kid. They can just, you know, reach out to someone they know that, that there's all these conversations and basketball circles that go on. It's really not a big deal at all to act like he's been tampered with, even though, you know, I, I don't think anything has happened in the CJ Frederick uh, situation that hasn't happened with any other guy that's entered the transfer portal this year. I think it's pretty standard stuff right now, but I do believe that with all the conversation about him in Kentucky, that's likely where he's headed. And, and like you said, I mean, Xavier is in a situation where they're pretty set on the wing and at the guard spots, they kind of know who their guys are. And if you were to bring in CJ Frederick, you're, going to take away minutes from someone who's expecting to get a lot of minutes this year. Does Kiki Tandy go back in the transfer portal at that point? Oh, well, yeah, probably. And I mean, Kiki Tandy's not even factoring into this. He, right. like, I know, I know, I mean, no, I know. But that's my point, though. Yeah, yeah. He's not even a guy you're concerned right. about if you're, you're trying right. to steal. But you are concerned about uh, Colby Jones, uh, Paul Scruggs, and Nate Johnson made the decision to come back. So my right. guess is, like, Nate Johnson is probably the loser in that situation. He's the guy that loses some minutes. But, you know, Adam Kunkel, you have around for a few more years. That's that's really the situation that Xavier's in. You're right. So the other side is Cincinnati. This family has always liked Mick Cronin. They've always liked Cincinnati for the most part. I would have thought the, the Mick Cronin leaving and, and the way that all went down would kind of sour the family's opinion of Cincinnati a little bit. And I think it probably did. But I've also seen a lot of support coming uh, you know, from his uncle about Wes Miller on social media. So I think Cincinnati is a it will definitely get in the conversation. They'll definitely be able to talk to him. And there's minutes available. And there's certainly a major role to come home to and uh, start right away and and maybe be a part of the rebuild and the restoring of Cincinnati basketball. So I think there are legitimate reasons. Oh, the other thing about Xavier that we do have to mention is his best friend from Iowa, Jack Nungy, is now at Xavier. That is a, a reason why Xavier could be a little bit of a dark horse in there and and maybe have a chance. But again, if, if I'm a betting man, I'm going pretty heavy on UK in this yeah, one. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you on that. All right. Uh, we've got an Ask Any Anything. This goes back to our Bengals segment, actually. Kyle wants to know, who is to blame for all the high-level talent the Bengals still need to compete in the AFC North? The Bengals got a seventh and a third-string offensive guard and lost Atkins, Dunlap, Green, Dalton, and Bernard, while the Dolphins traded their assets and received draft capital to jumpstart their rebuild. Yeah, I'm not sure what the question is, though. Who's responsible for that? Yeah, who is to blame for all the high-level talent the Bengals still need to compete in the AFC North? There, there's always your $64,000 question because there really isn't one person to point the finger at. I mean, that's the that's no one's out in front of all this stuff. I, I, could, I could say Duke Tobin, and I'm probably right, but was he been at times um, out, out vetoed by Mike Brown? Has Mike Brown put more control into Zach Taylor and said, Zach, you build the roster how you want. So do I point the finger at him? So that, no, that is a $64,000 question of who is the blame or if things go right, who deserves the praise for it? I, I think therein lies the rub is we don't have that point person we can talk about or point to. Well, and that's something you've gone over for years now, going right. back to the whole Marvin Lewis thing was the lack of accountability and the way they almost intentionally set it up that way, that they don't really want to have 
anyone to point the finger at and to to take charge and step up and say this is the person that that we're looking to you know the gm or or what have you i mean they don't want that position for a reason it seems like because lack of accountability is the name of the game up there yeah and, and i will say in regards to some of the players you're talking and he's right the dolphins have done a magnificent job of getting draft capital and rebuilding very quickly but some of the guys you mentioned and i think this is an apples and oranges thing i mean do you really want to spend you know, $4.6 million a year for Gio Bernard to touch the ball five times a game. I mean, really, do we really want to do that? Or can we take that money and spend it somewhere else? Dude is, you know, Gino Atkins, honestly, I'm just, I, I fear he was, he was on his last legs. Um, no pun intended. And it, it went quickly. And Carlos Dunlap, honestly, Carlos Dunlap, when he wants to play, he's really good. And I think you saw it in Seattle. There were a few moments last year where he was damn good. And then there was games he just it just disappears. And um, I don't think you'll see a, I, I think you saw motivated Carlos Dunlap at times in Seattle last year, having re-signed with Seattle. I don't think you'll see a very motivated Carlos Dunlap. I really don't. Well, and I think that's to the point of the question is like a, a lot of the guys he's saying the Bengals lost, they sound big in name because of what those guys have meant to the Bengals franchise over right. the years. But in terms of where the Bengals were at, for the most part, I think we all agreed those were, if not shrewd decisions or smart decisions, they right. were at least reasonable decisions and ones that most teams probably would have made given the same circumstances. I mean, it's not, it's not like they were losing a bunch of talent. No, in their prime. They're losing guys on bad contracts or guys towards the end that they were kind of looking to move on from. And, on I, and, I, and I'll be honest. I mean, the Giovanni Bernard move shows to me, that's actually a fairly un like move still well-liked in the locker room. Um, still, a, a I don't want to say overly, but still a, productive enough player good guy all those things are what the Bengals sometimes hang on to for a year too long I think they did that with AJ Green they hung on to it for a year too long that that seemed to me like a very and even Geno to some degree is a very unbengal like move you drafted him you developed him you watched him star he did get hurt last year let's see what he does coming off injury Let, no I'm not paying that kind of money for that hope He's the same Geno Atkins I think they've made a couple of unbengal like moves here and I don't know who's to credit for that or in the case of if the question is who's to blame, I don't know who's to blame for that either, but I think there's there's some un-Bengal-like things that have gone on the last few years, such as going into free agency. And some of it was because they had drafted so poorly, they had holes to fill, and so they had to dive in with both feet. But to dive in then, you also have to get rid of some big contracts of veterans like they did in Carlos Dunlap trading him and Geno Atkins letting him go and Giovanni Bart. So you got to make some of those d- decisions as well. And I think, honestly, I... I I'll be the last couple of off seasons. I'm tipping my cap a little bit to what they've done. All right. The other question we have here for this week's episode was about, I'm sure something you followed very closely. The super league situation. That I, followed had it, in soccer. I did follow it, believe it or not. Okay. So a little bit, they, what they want us to do is create our own super league for college basketball. I knew that was coming, Rick, because I put up a story this week. The AP did a, a Super League for college football. Um, okay. And, and so I, 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 I meant to go through this exercise, but this will be a good one to do just on the fly because I did not do it. But I thought it's funny. I thought we were I, I almost called you to tell you we need to do that as a podcast topic. So I'm glad this question <laughs> came up. Well, there you go. So they want us to put together our 10 team. Super League for college 10? basketball teams. Yeah, they're only giving. Well, I mean, we can go longer if you want. But well, as I say, it was good. It was going to be a 15 team Super League for soccer. 
Okay. And that's well, why that's why they did a 15 team AP guy did a 15 team college football super league. I'm willing to go 15 as see, well. This see, guy I, just... I, I think we do. And I, here's what I, I was going to say for the college football. I think we do 16 teams because you don't want to have a team take a day off. Everybody's got to play each other. You want to have an even number of teams, don't you? There you go. Okay. So 16. 16. All right. 16, 16 Super League. Um, and then he also wants to know what we think about the idea of relegation in college basketball. Oh, I love it. I think, that, I think it'd that, be yes, fantastic. Yes. For, yeah. If, I mean, if, listen, if DePaul was getting shipped off this year and Loyola Chicago was getting brought into the Big East, that'd be hilarious. Can you imagine Kentucky getting relegated this year? And Duke? <laughs> I and think Carolina? No, Carolina, Carolina would have not. Yeah, Carolina would not have gotten relegated, but yes. I mean, yeah, but, I think it's got to be an average over like no, a three that's year that, yeah, window and, or something. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. That's a good uh, point. All right, so uh, we've got Duke. So you, you, will, you, will, you, will you type these in as we go yeah, so we can keep that, track? That's what I'm doing. Duke, Kentucky, okay. we can agree. North yes, Carolina, Carolina Kansas. Kansas. Yep. I got to put Gonzaga in there. Gonzaga, I'm with you. That would be my next in line as well. Um, I know they're new to the party. Um, Michigan Ohio State. State. I'm Michigan State. Yeah, they're 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 on the cusp. Although they've taken what, a wait, down. Michigan State is on the cusp, but Ohio State is definitely in. I don't understand. Yeah, that no, no, logic. no. I, I I threw out Ohio State. I'm throwing I'm, out. Some I'm in. Right I'm in on Ohio State, but Michigan State's in right. for Ohio you're, State. You're, you're you're not going to like this, but you've got to have some blue blood to you or past blue blood to you. I got to put UCLA in there. I'm most fine, na- I'm most national titles that. all time. I mean, you got to do it just because of that. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Uh, and look, I mean, Mick got them back right, this year right. to where they want to be, and that helps in this recency bias. But also, uh, you need a West Coast team in general, and who else are you taking? Yeah, no, right. That's right. Um, Louisville? Yeah, I put Louisville in there. Yeah, I mean, okay. It's funny because they, they consider themselves blue blood, and they haven't done anything for 20 years. Where does Indiana fit in this well, equation? So I, I would, here's my thing. I don't think Indiana is in the Super League based on their performance, obviously. But I think it would be hilarious to have Indiana in this league because you know who your bottom feeder is and you know exactly <laughs> how crazy that's going to drive their fan base. Yeah. So I'm willing to put them in just to see them lose constantly. But I do not think they would be actually in my top 15 te- or 16 teams. Um, I will tell you one that we're kind of overlooking is Villanova. Yes, fair enough. Good call. Villanova Good call. And, would be in and there. it's not just recent success. They won a national title in the eight. I think some of this, if we're looking at doing this initially, there does have to be some history to that program. Too. Uh, some history, but I think I'm I'm doing this a lot on the last decade plus. I mean, I think you know the last two decades is really kind of where I put my biggest focus on here. I don't care about a team that won a bunch of games in the '60s and hasn't done oh, anything I'm, I'm, recently. I'm, I'm, I'm noting you there, um, Syracuse. Yeah, I think you got to. I mean, that's a tough one for me. Their regular season struggles, but then they're always there when they're an 11 seed yep. in the tournament. All right, so what are we up to? How many are we up to? That puts us at 11. Okay. <laughs> I can't do I can't do Texas. West Virginia? Well, Let's take the West off, and how do you feel about Virginia? I mean, um, yeah, that's that's and a again, tough one I'm, for me. Obviously, I hate. But I'm them. also going. I, I, listen, I, I'm. I do think there has to be some history. So you go back to some of. Them, I mean, they were they were one of the benchmark teams Dirt. of the '80s too. So uh, yeah, Virginia's fine. I'm good with Virginia. Okay. So where were we at with Ohio State? Yay or nay? I put them in there. Okay. And you put Michigan in, correct? Or no? I had Michigan State, State, not Michigan. 
Okay. Yeah. Michigan. I think Michigan belongs in there. They've had some pretty good success over the last decade plus. Yeah. Michigan should be in there. And again, and again, history. Got to put the history portion of the program in it for me. Yeah. Um, What, where does an Oregon fit? Where does an Arizona fit? Both of those are interesting question. I think recency bias is, is makes both of those even more difficult. Man, I don't know. The, and then, like, I, here's another one that I that I have a really hard time. Well, no, I think I think I probably put them in because they've got great history, and it's not even distant history, and they're on the upswing again. I think UConn probably goes in for me. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. That's that's not an awful one. You're you're going to completely disagree with this, but again, I'm going history, and it's it's not been a great NCAA tournament run history of late, but just history in general. They've got a couple NCAA titles. Went to a Final Four, albeit 30 years ago. Where does Cincinnati, they're all, one of the all-time winningest programs. Where does UC get fit in this? I mean, I would not have them in my top Well, look them up. I, I, basketball. I, I, they're Rick, in the I, AAC. I, I, I'm, I'm noting you there, but again, I, I, I want some history on my side here a little bit. I yeah, mean, that, was the, that was goes back to the 60s conversation. We had. Yeah, but they're easily, I think they're 15th all-time in wins. I mean, they're up there. It's not just the 60s. I mean, they've... They've been a consistent winner since 1989, basically. They've yeah. been a consistent NCAA tournament team literally since 1980 or since okay. 1990, whatever year. Whatever year Hugs took them to the 91 or 92. Everything you're saying is fair. Let me just ask you this. If we're not sitting here in the tri-state area, does anyone nationally put Cincinnati in their top 16 teams if they're doing the same exercise? Probably not. I, think no, I don't think there, I, I do think there's there, – there, but – it's not like they've done something for a three-year window, Rick. I mean, we're talking pretty damn oh, consistent success. No, you're right. They haven't done plus, they haven't done plus, anything in the last three years. You're plus, right. I agree. Plus, plus two plus two national titles in their history. I think that's got to factor in, man. That can factor in. That's fine. But again, I mean, if you want to put them in your 16 team Super okay. League, that's fine. I'm just telling you, I don't think anyone else. If you get, if you, I think it's this, an interesting conversation. If you put this exercise in front of. I don't know, a hundred sports writers across the country no, you're that aren't right. from this area. No, you're right. I don't think many does, of them. That, I mean, they'd all have that, to be pretty old to put UC in, I think. That doesn't mean they think either. So there's that. Well, that's fair. Um, I like, so what are, for instance, so I, so take I mean, the, here's, what, here's what, what thing, are we at number wise? We're at 14 right now without UC. And that that's not including like, are you going to have UC in over Wisconsin? Are you going to have UC yes. in over Purdue? Are you going to have yes. UC in over Virginia? No, I've already counted Virginia in. Well, I, I didn't have. Okay, I did have Virginia. I take yeah. that back. Yeah, we can um, count West Virginia. I'm going to say, well, that's a good one because West Virginia has been a long time consistent. I mean, Gail Catlett into Huggins. Probably it's 50-50 for me. Honest to goodness. It's probably uh, 50-50. Where are you at on Texas. I guess the, the the poor recency bias for me there, and even though they were a consistent NCAA tournament team under Rick Barnes, I mean, what, one Final Four, that's it? No other real history but that? I'm, I'm asking the question. Um, I know, I'm saying no to Texas. A team that's really fallen off in recent history, but, ha- you know, I mean, Maryland is – a right. team that I think would be in the conversation. I don't think I would have them in there. I don't think I would either, but they are um, history. What, history's on their side too, a little bit. What about Oklahoma? Yeah. Again, I guess the, the recency bias for me takes them away. Oh, uh, Billy, here's Billy. Billy Dubs got him to a national title game, but yeah, I'm going to say, no, I'm no, I'm putting UC above them. What about Florida? 
Florida's a good one for me. Um, it's not a lengthy history. It really dates from Billy Donovan's era on. I mean, two national championships, consistent NCAA tournament team, still a consistent NCAA tournament team. I, I think that's a that's certainly one of those ones we throw on the board and talk about. You know what's funny? I think I'd want Indiana over like all the schools that we just mentioned, even though they've sucked for. I, as I long know as it's sucked. just because it just feels it just feels big. Indiana feels right, big with basketball. Right. It does. It does. It it. And that's the it funny still part. matters. It's still yes. like even it doesn't. I I as and much as I make fun of them, blue they, blood. They of think course, they're a blue blood. That's that's the whole thing. I mean, they they're legitimately strong enough as a fan base to stay relevant, and I I that is impressive. So here's what I want you to do. So let's do this. Let's do this exercise. Maybe Let, let's do put a, put a solid. What are we at? 14 that we feel really, really good about right now. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're up to like 17 or 18 names. Well, I was going to say in here as we're going through, if you want to put maybe a 12, 12 or 14 that we feel good about and put it out on Twitter and see what the fans think. Yeah, I mean, I'll de- I'm definitely willing to, to tweet this out. Because um, these are all interesting debates. I, I mean, I know I'm making a case for – dude, I'm a Kentucky grad. Why should I be making a case for UC, right? I mean – Oh, yeah, and I, I mean, but, I don't – But I'm making a case because I think they're legitimately in the conversation. I think it's reasonable to have them in the conversation maybe, especially based off of history. I just don't think you would find anyone that doesn't have that local bias that would say they're a top 16 team in the country. I, I mean, even – even with their history, I just don't think that's the case at all. No, it, it's, it, it's hard to not make the past the second round of the tournament in no, no, I understand over it. a decade and then like have people talk about you. In that but way. the point is, they are consistently in the tournament and have been basically for 30 years, give or take a few years. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's right. I don't, I, I'm not trying to like this isn't like a crap on you. No, I know it's not. I know you're, no, you're, no, you're, I'm trying to be argument, reasonable about this, yes, but I, obviously one. I know me being the Xavier writer and uh, you see people feeling the way they do about me, how this is going to come off. Uh, I just don't, I, I do not see it. I'm sorry. No, I, I think your, your point's a fair one that if we took a hundred people from around the country, put them in a room and put this exercise, Richard Skinner would be the only one that would probably say, Hey, put Cincinnati on the board. Let's talk about them. And it would probably get wiped off the board very quickly. I, I get that, but I think people need to look at the history of the program. And it's a pretty long, long, long list of, of, of success for UC, UC basketball. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anyone's denying that. I just think their biggest accomplishments, biggest accomplishments are in the sixties. Yeah, I mean, winning two that, national titles. Yeah, that, 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 that's right, right. Right. It's just if we're trying to form the best league now, I don't think things that happened in the 60s are really that relevant. Right. But that's why I'm going back to the last 30 years, too. I'm on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that wouldn't put them in without the 60s. I don't think that's yeah, maybe. maybe. OK, maybe. Maybe that may be the case. Yeah. Um, and, and as far as the UCLA thing, and it's not all recency bias or John Wooden. I mean, Jim Herrick won a national title. Ben Howland took him to what? Three straight final fours. I mean. That, that's that's yeah, four different that's four different coaches and I, oh Gary Cunningham I think took them to a championship game I mean there's about five coaches that have taken them to final fours that's that's pretty good run yeah I think UCLA and by the way I didn't have Arizona on this list either you had mentioned them earlier yeah like, I think, I think they belong UC, Arizona yeah, think, would yeah be Arizona for sure yeah, Arizona clearly belongs I mean yeah, they no yeah. no question all right let's let's try to go back and pare this down a little bit okay Duke, Kentucky right. North Carolina Kansas Gonzaga Michigan State Ohio State UCLA Louisville Villanova uh, those those all I feel great about. I mean, those are ten teams right there that I don't think there's any doubt. The, okay, so out of out I of think these teams, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, Rick. I, I think Arizona belongs in that mix too. I'm with you. I, I was yeah. just gonna say that. I, I think Arizona I'd be the most confident out of Michigan next for me. Um, yes, 
Okay, so that's twelve right there. And again, when you want to talk history, you got you. I, I you, you can go back a long time in Michigan history. It's not always, but the pockets of success for them have been yeah, wildly successful. Right? Come on, five, five. They, they, they've been super correct. relevant recently. No, no, too, correct. By the way, and, and that's the, and that's the flip side of it. Of recent, recently, they've been relevant for the last decade with John Beeline took over into Juwan Howard. So yes, absolutely, Michigan. Yeah. Um, so that, that's 12. Uh, I'm going to read off a list of teams that we have right here that we've discussed. And you tell me who you feel best about for these okay. last four spots, Syracuse, Virginia, Yukon, West Virginia, Texas, Florida, Purdue, Cincinnati. I'm going to go. And I'll probably have to ask, ask you to repeat it here in a second. I, I'm going Syracuse and Virginia. Um, Read them off to me again after that. UConn, no. West Virginia, Texas, Florida. Well, 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 UConn, you're right. They're on the way back. And the, the starting back to the Jim Calhoun era, we're talking 30 years again of success for them, too. Uh, yeah, plus Kevin Ollie won a national title. People I forget know, that. I know. I'd probably, uh, I'd probably go UConn, then Florida. And am I at 16 at that point? That would put you at 16, yeah. Yeah, and Cincinnati would be just the odd team out. So you'd yeah, you'd be leaving uh West Virginia out, you'd be leaving yep. Texas out, you'd yep. be leaving Oklahoma out, yep. Purdue, yep, Cincinnati. I didn't have this written down at all, but another team that we had talked about briefly, Wisconsin. Yep. Might be a name that you'd think about in no, there. No. Uh Florida State, Oregon. No. no. I think I'm good where we're at. Okay. I like I mean uh Are you good with it or is there somebody you you take off and put in? No, I'm I'm just looking through like names of uh, teams that pop out to me as I scroll. So through I'll, I'll be interested if you put that on Twitter. Go ahead and put our put our list out there, and then put the teams that we had also talked about, and just ask if there's any others or who we, who you would take out and put in instead. Because that's always the yeah. thing. It's like such and such needs to be in. Well, okay, that's who do you cool. take out? Yeah, take it out. Right. That's always the I always I always love that one. And All that's right. why you, it, this was like a little bit of an extended segment, which is good because we didn't have like a bunch of other questions that we needed to get through. But this was actually more fun of an exercise than I thought. Going I'm glad through the question there, came up because I, I literally thought of it as a topic. So I'm glad the question got asked. Yeah, I, I feel pretty good about that 16. So let me run through them one more time yep. here. We've got Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, Kansas, Gonzaga, Michigan State, Ohio State, UCLA, Louisville, Villanova, Arizona, Michigan, Syracuse, Virginia, Yukon and Florida. I like it. So that's, I let's feel see good about it. You've got one, two, three, four, four ACC teams. Okay. Two SEC teams. Yep. Uh, How many big tens? Three big tens? Michigan State, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan. Yeah, three big tens. Did we put Indiana in, or did we, did we, we did not put we did not put Indiana okay. in? Okay, all right. Well, we'll put them on the list of people to talk about just because of their history and their blue bloodedness that they think they are. Put yeah. them on the list of, of of ones we didn't put in of that were you in know, our conversation. You, you know what? The, you know what's funny about this? When I look at Florida on this list, I it know it's look to, right. It yeah, it's look totally right. recency bias, but it's like, why is Florida in this list? And then I'm like, oh, Joakim Noah, I guess. I, well, I guess I, why but, they're there. Well, but I'll go back. I mean. Listen, I was covering Kentucky back in the late the late nineties, early two thousands, and Billy Donovan had Florida as a relevant program. He and then finally took that relevancy to where they were building into a national power to then finally winning those back to back national titles. Um, and yeah, I know that's semi recency, but you know, they're back as a consistent team in the tournament. I I guess they would be sixteen of sixteen at this point for me, but they're in. 
maybe some some older like teams with a little older history trying to dig in uh, the Big East ranked. Does Georgetown sniff it for you at all? Nah, because they've just fallen off so far. Yeah, um, yeah. The um, answer is no. Does Illinois no get in the conversation no. at all for you? No, no. Yeah, I mean they're on the way back. It looks like, but they need to do some more. If we did this exercise in five or 10 years, they might get back in the conversation because their history has been pretty good, but their recent history this year beside wasn't very good. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, that pretty much does. That it was good. For, I love that. I'm glad yeah, we did that. That was, that that was, was fun. I'll tweet this stuff. list out and I'm sure good. people will be mad at us. They'll be hating us. I'm sure I'll get tons of flack for uh, saying I wouldn't have you see it. I did. I no, just, I mean, think, at, all, at the end of the day, I didn't either. And I made a case for him. So yeah, I mean, again, if it's if it's all about your your amount of total championships long term, then yeah, I mean, I think UC has. No, I think there has to be a good mix of recent history, past history, consistent success, all of those things. I think UC, as I mentioned, I think if you do all those things, they are in the conversation. But if we're weighing out where we're at in the landscape of things, they're probably out. Yeah, uh, that's. That's where I'd be at it. I, I don't I don't have any issue with you bringing them up. I don't have any. If it, they're definitely in the conversation because of their history and they've been relevant enough by making the tournament. Again, I just go back to I think that's a, a local thing. I don't think nationally people would have them in their top 16 yeah. teams in college basketball right now in 2021. All right. Good stuff, Rick. I appreciate it as always. Uh, for Rick Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. Thanks for being with us. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Bo edition. edition.